Uh, thank you, worship team. We got a. We are blessed with a lot of gifted musicians here, aren't we? Yes, was be the right answer to that. Thank you. Yep, I heard one of you say that. That's good. Yes, we are. Uh, all right. Hey, thank you for joining us this morning. You have found us in part two of a four-part series called "I've Been Thinking." Began last Sunday, uh, Easter Sunday, and continuing for the next three weeks. And this, the basis of this series is this idea that there are certain things that all of us think about at some time or another in life that are rather weighty or heavy. And a lot of them are related to, in our case, the Christian faith. And here's what I believe, that because the Christian faith asks so much of you, that you should ask so much of it. In other words, if the if the ask on you as someone who is being invited to respond to God's invitation to believe in Jesus, if that ask was limited, instead of saying, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength, if the ask was, hey, just give me some of your life, give me, give me some of your love, I need most of your time, not all of it, I need most of your interest, but not everything. If the ask was lighter, then it's okay not to take it as seriously. But when the ask from Jesus is, unless you're willing to lay down your life and follow me, you can't be my disciple. Whoa, this is a big ask. And if the promises weren't so big, like eternal life, if the promises weren't so big, then I might not want to ask the big questions. But when Christianity both asks a lot from you and offers a lot to you, it is right to ask a lot of it. And there are certain questions that we have that kind of like a little splinter in the brain just sometimes don't feel right or sit right and they just don't rub right. And it's like, eh. Last week we asked one of those questions. Did Jesus really come back to life? I mean, really, really, really happen? Did, did someone named Jesus actually walk on the planet, die, was buried, came back to life, appeared to people, and went up to heaven. I mean, do we really believe that? Because this is what it's all based on. And last week we asked four questions. Can we see and can we prove in some measure that he actually died? That the tomb is actually empty? That he actually appeared to people? And if this is actually true, then number four, what is the impact on history as a result of this event? And we covered all those and I, and I think laid out a pretty good response biblically and from our Christian heritage about all of these things that have happened to, in my opinion, give it a great um, credence to the resurrection. In fact, my belief is that there's actually no event in ancient history more attested to than the resurrection. Now this morning we're going to ask another hard question. It's a very difficult question. It's one of those questions that sometimes um, keeps people from the faith. And if you're a Christian, you've been in church for a while, you've asked and you may not have ever had a good answer to, but you just might keep asking it anyway. And that is this, is Jesus really the only way to God? Is Jesus really the only way to God? Not just one of many, or not a good way, or not the best way even, but is he really the only way to God? And what are the implications of that? Now, to set this in context, I want to begin by setting the mood or the historical framework for what we find on this question. It's a big, big question. And I'll tell you this, depending on your age here, this question you will respond to in different ways, I believe. And I don't quite know where the cutoff is, but here's what I think. I think if you're somewhere in your 40s on down, you will begin, as the age goes lower, you will begin to fight more against this than as the age goes higher. Okay? 
as postmodernism has grabbed hold of a generation in the 40s or below, you're going to fight against this teaching a little bit harder than perhaps those who are above 40s and, and moving up. Now, general, general rule here that this is where I think we will land. Therefore, for those who are maybe a little on the younger side, this issue is very difficult to wrestle with. In fact, if you grew up, if you're growing up now and you're, you're in your 20s, 30s, you know, even 40 in your teens, you're growing up in a culture which is telling you different things <clears throat> than your parents or grandparents experienced on this issue. Okay? Now here's the historical background. I want to just share this with you briefly and then talk about the mood in which we find ourselves in. Uh, you should know this, that the response to this issue has been varied over history. Um, William Lane Craig, an apologist, uh, meaning he doesn't apologize for things, but he explains the Christian faith, he wrote in an article called, How Can Christ Be the Only Way to God? He talked about the history of this a little bit. I just wanted to share this with you briefly. He said, this doctrine about that Jesus is the only way, this doctrine was just as scandalous in the polytheistic world of the Roman Empire as in contemporary Western culture. So beginning all the way back in Rome, this was just as controversial. Early Christians were therefore often subjected to severe persecution, torture, and death because of their refusal to embrace a pluralistic approach to religions. In time, however, as Christianity grew to supplant the religions of Greece and Rome and became the official religion of the Roman Empire, the scandal receded. Indeed, for medieval thinkers like Augustine and Aquinas, one of the marks of the true church was its Catholicity, meaning its universality. To them, it seemed incredible that the church edifice of the Christian church, the great edifice of the Christian church, filling all of civilization should be founded on a falsehood. In other words, as history moved forward and Christianity became bigger, particularly in Europe, it was just assumed that this is what everybody believes. I mean, who wouldn't believe this? And then, the demise of this doctrine came with the so-called expansion of Europe, quote-unquote, which refers to three centuries of exploration and discovery from about 1450 to 1750. Through the travels and voyages of men like Marco Polo, Christopher Columbus, and Ferdinand Magellan, new civilizations and whole new worlds were, were discovered, which knew nothing of the Christian faith. So all of a sudden, for 300 years, people are beginning to discover, whoa, you mean the things that we just assumed everybody knew, not everybody knows? You mean not everybody is Christian? Like not everybody knows about Jesus? I mean, how can that be? And as discoveries of new lands opened up, so too came this realization that, whoa, there are people on the corners of the globe who don't know about Jesus, actually never heard about him before. Therefore, if you're going to say Jesus is the only way, what do you say to those who have yet to hear about him? All right, so here we go. This realization had much of the world laying outside of the bounds of Christianity, and it had a twofold impact upon people's religious thinking. First, it tended to relativize Christian beliefs. It tended to relativize religious beliefs. It was seen that far from being the universal religion of mankind, Christianity was largely confined to Western Europe, just a corner of the globe. No particular re religion, it seemed, could make a claim to universal validity. Each society seemed to have its own religion suited to its particular needs. And second, it made Christianity's claim to be the only way of salvation seem narrow and cruel. Right? Enlightened rationalists like Voltaire taunted the Christians of his day with the prospect of millions of Chinamen who were doomed to hell 
for not having believed in Christ, when they had not so much as even heard of Christ. And in our own day, Craig writes, the influx into Western nations of immigrants from former colonies and the advances in telecommunications have shrunk the globe, the world to a global village and have heightened our awareness of the religious diversity of mankind. And as a result, we find ourselves essentially back where we were in the early church. As a result, religious pluralism has today become once again the conventional wisdom. Religious pluralism has once again become the conventional wisdom. This is the day in which we realize there are people from all corners of this globe who have actually never heard about Jesus. And so how can you be so narrow-minded to say Jesus is the only way? There are people who have actually never even heard of the Bible or heard of Jesus Christ, and yet you are going to say that he's the only way to God. I've been thinking, that doesn't seem right. Like that, it just doesn't seem fair either. And yet you're going to claim that, all right? Robbie Zacharias wrote, and this is much shorter here, but he, he explains the mood which this sets. And moods are important things. I'll get to that in a moment. But he talks about the mood. He says this, We're living in a time where sensitivities are at the surface, often vented with cutting words. Philosophically, you can believe anything so long as you do not claim it to be true. Morally, you can practice anything so long as you do not claim that it is a better way. And religiously, you can hold on to anything so long as you do not bring Jesus Christ into it. He writes, if a spiritual idea is Eastern, it is granted critical immunity. If Western, it is thoroughly criticized. Thus, a journalist can walk into a church and mock its carryings on, but he or she dare not do the same if the ceremony is from the Eastern fold. Such is the mood at the end of the 20th century. And then he writes this, this is very profound. A mood can be a dangerous state of mind because it can crush reason under the weight of feeling. A mood can be a dangerous state of mind because it can crush reason under the weight of feeling. Have that ever happened to you? You put on your clothes. Man, I feel, does this make me look fat? Because I'm feeling, I feel fat. I don't know. I mean, does it make me? And then, of course, you know the answer, do I look fat in this? The answer is, <laughs> you don't have a good answer. No, no. I mean, you've never looked fat in your life. Like, the word fat never came to my mind. You don't look fat in that at all. But the mood that you're in makes you feel fat, and it can crush reason under the weight of your feeling. And so you can feel fat if you want to feel fat, but the truth might be you're not fat, but you don't believe that because you're in a bad mood. Ever been there? Mood can be a dangerous thing because it can crush reason under the weight of feeling. And so here we are in the mood of our century today, in the place that we find ourselves. And the mood is religious pluralism is right. And your view, Christian, that Jesus is the only way, is so antiquated, so old. I mean, come on, you've got to be kidding me. And the weight, the weight, the weight of the mood of our culture now is saying, come on. Think clearly, people. Come on. We no longer live in an old time where that one way is the only way can, can carry the weight. And we find ourselves in what I call kind of a, a T-junction of decision where we're driving up the road and we have a decision to make. Do I go left or do I go right on this issue? Do I go left with what God wants to sing and what, what I think the Bible might say? Do I go right on what the culture is pulling me and drawing me into? This is a big moment for us. The, these kind of T-junctions of faith happen all the time. The decision-making things happen all the time, and they're very, very critical. They happen oftentimes when I look in the mirror, all right? 
when I look in the mirror and I ask the question, we don't ask this philosophically this way all the time because we don't have time to, to mess with it, but we will all ask the question. I look in the mirror and I say, man, who am I? Who am I? We have those moments that are passing moments. Who am I? And the answer comes back. I'm either, if I look to the left, I see that I'm made in the image of God, therefore I have value because of that. Or I look to the right, and I have value because of what culture assigns to me. Or I look to the right, and I see, man, I'm not measuring up to what people think I should do. I'm not even measuring up to my own standards. And so let's, let me put this in practical terms. For ladies, for many times for you, that T-junction is the mirror. You stand in front of the mirror, and you say, man, who am I? Do I look quite right? Is my hair quite right? Is my dress quite right? Am I dressed up quite right? Am I looking good enough? And, and who am I? And my identity oftentimes is wrapped up in the appearance. I'm not getting down on it. I'm just saying that's just kind of reality. For men, our mirror is the mirror of accomplishments and work. Are we doing enough? Are we producing enough? Are we strong enough, courageous enough? Are we doing enough? We all have the things in which we stand up against and say, I've got to decide. You know, who am I in light of this? And in that moment, we have to look left or right. Am I going to believe what God says regardless of how I feel, or am I going to believe kind of what, what people are pulling me into? And in, in a way, this issue comes right at the T-junction. I've got to decide, am I going to look left and say, here's what God has to say about that. Am I going to take the left turn, or am I going to say, we're at a T-junction, and this thing is saying right, the culture, the mood of the culture is pulling me right to say, let me tell you, only people who are backwards still believe that Jesus is the only way to God. You know, what do I do with that? How do I process that as, as, as an individual? How do I figure out what I should do when I come to this moment where the mood of the culture is pressing down and it's pressing reason out with feeling? And so what I want to share with you this morning is just a couple of things because um, I think they're so important because at issue here is not just do I get a question right or wrong. At issue here is this, that if... If Jesus is the only way to God, and he asks you for everything, and he asks for all of your hope and all of your confidence, he asks for you to trust him with everything that you have, with every struggle that you bear, with every doubt that you have, with every fight that you have within yourself, he says, trust me with it. I am the answer for you. All right? And so he pulls you and draws you in with that. Now, can he handle that or not? Is he right? And, and here's the thing. If, if I begin to give ground and say, I'm not convinced because of the weight of pluralism, because of the, the weight of the world coming into our little, little piece of the world here, and I'm seeing that there are people who don't know Jesus at all. It doesn't seem fair. I'm not sure. I'm not convinced. We just need to know that at stake here is not just do I get a question right or wrong. At stake here is what is the authority upon which I am building my life. Because when I come to the T-junction of life, if I begin to give ground on this issue, basically I'm saying I'm not sure that I'm convinced that the Word of God has authority in my life to draw me away from the mood of a culture. So this morning I want to lay out to you, just briefly, why the scriptures say what they say, and then put back to you, what am I going to do with what I heard? All right. So let me give you this. Um, our first thing that I want to mention is, is our core value here at GPC, because this is so important for us. Um, at Grace Point, we talk about this. Uh, at the beginning, middle, and end of the day, um, God is in charge in what he wants goes. This is our way of saying that we believe the Bible has authority. We go on to say this, that the Bible reveals, God, reveals God's clearest desires. When what I want conflicts with what God wants, he wins. 
This is a big statement for us, meaning that whenever I'm pushing up against that T-junction in life and I'm trying to decide what is right, am I going to lean into my way or you know, my intellect, my experience? Am I going to actually lean into what God wants? And when they conflict, when I think that I should handle a problem this way and I think God's Word says this way, what am I going to do? It's an authority issue. And when I don't want to yield to that authority, here's the moment. And here's the question that we give to everybody on this core value. We ask the question, how much authority am I willing to give God and his word in my life? And this is what's at issue here. How much authority am I willing to give God and his word in my life when I want to disagree with something that's in the word of God? What do I do with that? So let me, let me walk through briefly a couple of things in the scriptures and then put it right back out to you, okay? The Apostle Paul, um, who started, as many of you know, as someone who persecuted Christians, ended up um, becoming the greatest missionary of all time. He wrote this in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5. He said, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ. His starting point is this. Because there is one God, not many gods, but because there is one God, there is one mediator between that God and men. That one God doesn't need a multitude of ways to get there. The one God who has created everything has said, come to me and let me give you the way to do that. There's one God, that's his beginning point, that is the creator. There is not many, but there is simply one. And that the man, Christ Jesus, is that way. And so this is Paul's belief. Okay? You don't have to agree with that or disagree with that or anything. I'm just telling you, this is where Paul is at. And this is what he staked his life on. He went on to write in Ephesians chapter 2, he said this, remember that you were separate from Christ. He starts that way, you were separate from Christ. And the result of that, if you were separate from Christ, here's the result, that you were excluded from citizenship in Israel, you were foreigners to the covenants of the promise, you were without hope and without God in this world. That's a long list of results when you are separate from Christ. So if you're separate from Christ, he says you're excluded from citizenship in Israel, you're foreigners to the covenants of the promise, the way that God relates to people, you're without hope, that's a pretty strong statement, and you're without God in the world. In other words, you can't get to God in another way if you're separate from Christ. This is what Paul is writing. Now again, you may not agree with that, I'm just telling you, this is what Paul wrote, okay? This is what he staked his life on, that this is what happens when you're separate from Christ. In the book of Acts, Peter gave a, um, a message. He preached in the book of Acts several times, and in one of those messages, he gave a, made a statement that, um, that is probably one of the clearest statements on this issue of, is Jesus the only way? In Acts 4.12, he writes this, that salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. That's about as direct as it comes. From Peter, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Now, again, these are people, real flesh and blood people, Paul and Peter, who actually believed what they wrote so much that they were going to die for it. And they were okay with that. They believed it so much. They said, you know what, this is my life. This isn't just something I want to write down so future people can have something to talk about and can argue about, you know, what about those who never heard. This became such a conviction for them and such a passion for them that they said, you know what, we are going to live and die for this reality. This is where Paul 
and Peter and the early disciples were at. This is what birthed the movement. To say this is so important. There's only one God. There's one mediator between God and men. We've got to let people know. There's no other name under heaven by which you can be saved except through the man Christ Jesus. This is what people need to know. Now, let's talk about the reaction to this because this is important uh, for us to process. Several things. Um, number one, um, there's a pushback to this. That Christians who hold this, people who hold this, can be arrogant. And this can create an arrogance of we have the way and others simply don't. And I will grant that argument. Yes, it can create an arrogance. It can create a we have it and you don't mentality. At the same time, how you carry yourself does not change the truth at all, does it? In other words, you may love that President Barack Obama is currently the President of the United States. You may not love that he is the President of the United States. It doesn't matter what you feel about that or even actually the attitude in which you carry yourself related to that truth. It is still true, right? So our reaction to the truth, our attitude about something that is true is immaterial to the issue of the truth itself. So can it create arrogant people? Yes. Can it create loving people? Yes. Does it matter what you do in terms of your attitude to the response? No, the truth itself stands for what it is. Just because it can create arrogance doesn't mean that it's necessarily not true. All right? The biggest issue, though, I think is this. It doesn't seem fair. It doesn't seem fair. Like if we're honest, it just doesn't seem, just doesn't seem fair at all. There, there are people who did not grow up in our country, who did not grow up in a place where they had access to the gospel freely. What about them? That just, if we're honest, it doesn't seem fair. Let's talk about that for a minute. Number one, is it possible for something to be not fair, in our estimation, and true? Is it possible for something to be both not fair, in our estimation, and true? I think we'd say the answer is yes. And you know why we say yes? Here's why. Because of grandparents. Here's what I mean by that. Grandparents will love on their grandchildren in a way that they actually didn't love on their own children because they realize, you know what, here's a chance I have to spoil this kid. And you know what? I've grown up and I've learned the things that as a parent that I used to be more concerned about, I've learned that those were small battles and I've learned the right ones to fight and there's not a lot of big ones to fight. So we need to be gracious with the grandkids. We need to remind them of their value and truth. And the parent walks in like, what are you doing letting them get away with that? I know they don't have four pieces of candy after supper. What are you talking about? And the grandparent, it's like, hey, Take it easy, take it easy, take it easy. It's, it's, it's going to be okay. All right. And as a parent, you walk and you're like, man, what's going on? Are you kidding me? Like, you can't raise them that way. And as, and as a grandparent, you're like, relax, relax, relax. It's going to be okay. Now, can something be true that isn't fair? Yes. In particular, in this example, grace. Does the kid deserve four Snickers bars after dessert? No. Do they get them? If they're with a grandparent, yes. Is it true? Yes. Do they deserve it? No. Is not this the case for us with the grace of God coming to us in forgiveness? Do I deserve the grace that He gives me? No. Is it fair? Is it fair that He gives me the grace that He gives me? No, it isn't fair. But I'm okay with that because it's true. Is it fair that I'm forgiven constantly for the sin that I commit? Is that fair? No. 
It's not fair, but it's good. And it's also true. So the category exists, and we have it all the time in our world, things that we think are not fair but are also true. Now back that up a little bit further. Do we even have the ability to judge fairness and equity? That we've talked about here before. I'm telling you, as a five-year-old growing up in my home, I thought I knew all of what was fair. What do you mean I can't stay up past 9 o'clock to watch the movie again? You know, what, what? What's wrong with that? That's not fair. You know, what do you mean as a teenager I can't stay out till 2 in the morning? Are you kidding me? I mean, I can't drive to Pittsburgh tonight and come back by 3 in the morning? What's wrong? I don't know how to drive. What's wrong with that? It's not fair. You ever feel that way? So here I am, you know, a five-year-old, a teenager, looking at guidelines given to me by people who are more experienced than me as parents and saying, this isn't good for you to do. And I'm going to say, in my vantage point, that isn't fair. You don't know what is fair. And so here we are saying to God, who is a little more experienced than us, this isn't fair that you are doing it this way. And the reason we think it's not fair is this. We think it's not fair because people around the world who do not hear about Jesus and aren't born into a culture in which they have easy access to the gospel, it seems like God doesn't care about them. And that doesn't feel fair. And I get that. But we also need to remember things like 2 Peter 3.9. The reason that we even care about people outside of the gospel is because God has put that in us. And if we are made in his image, and if we have love for, compassion for, people are outside of him, what do you think he feels like? In 2 Peter 3.9, we're reminded that God wishes or desires that no one should perish, but that everyone come to knowledge of the truth. If that's true, we serve a God who has greater love and greater compassion and greater interest in the things that we do. And the reason that we even care about people outside of the faith is because that has been put there by the heart of the Father who has made us, because we're made in his image. Our ability to judge fairness and equity is so, so, so limited. We can't even determine what's fair for our own children, let alone what's fair for humanity. Now, I'll tell you the real reason. The real reason why I believe this, if you want to know. The real reason why I am here and the real reason why I land on the fact that I believe that there's no other name under heaven given by which man can be saved. The reason I believe that is not because Paul and Peter say it, although I believe that. Not just because they wrote that and I believe in their statements. The real reason I believe this is because if a man can come to this planet, die, predict his own resurrection, and successfully accomplish that, I will listen to what he says. If the resurrection is true, and if Jesus himself believed that he is the only way to God, then I will line myself up with him. And if anyone else can come around and do what he did, then let's talk about what we do. But if the resurrection is the most attested to historical event in ancient history, and this man, if he believed that he's the only way, 
then to me, I say, what am I going to do with that? And many of you who've been in church know this next verse. John 14, 6. Jesus answered, I am the way, and I am the truth, and I am the life. And no one comes to the Father but by me. If Jesus thought this about himself, and he had the ability not just to be a great leader or a great servant or a great teacher, but if he died and came back to life, I'm going to line up with what someone like that says. And then I need to figure out how to process my objections behind that and put that in light of what I know about the character and the love and, and, and the care of God. Let me ask you a couple of questions here this morning. At the decision-making T-junction, which way do I turn? And here's the T-junction. We're in a culture, we're in a mood in which you drive up to this issue of, is he the only way? And you look left to the Word of God, and you see some passages that I put up here in front of you this morning, and then you, you look right, and most of your friends are there. Right? And most of the people at school are there, most of the people at work are there, most, of, most all the people, whatever you see on TV are there, most all the stuff you read online is over here. And like Ravi Zacharias said, the, the, the mood of a culture is a dangerous thing because reason can be crushed under the weight of feeling. And it can feel wrong to hold to a view that everyone else around you seems to kind of push against. And I get that, I get that. But just know what it is. Just know what it is. That it is a mood and a feeling. And that moods are dangerous things. And sometimes you think you look fat, but you really don't. And the only reason you think you do is because you're in a bad mood. Just not true. Moods can create a perception of truth or untruth that aren't based in reason. So for me, if the man, God-man, Jesus Christ, came and died and came back to life, and he actually thinks that he is the only way to God, if someone else can come and trump that, I will follow them. Until then, I'm going to lean into what he says and deal with the pushback, even my own soul on that. Even in my own soul. We know there's such a thing as things being true that we think aren't fair. We know that the reason that we even love those outside of Christ is because God has put that in us and he stamped that image on our heart and that he actually cares for people more than we do. Believe it or not. The reason that we even love people is because we're made in his image. That's it. At the end of the day, this issue comes back to what we talk about in one of our core values at GPC and the question that it presents to us because my concern on us is this. I think we need to wrestle on this issue, particularly if you're in your, your teens, your 20s, your 30s, maybe even 40s, uh, particularly in that generation. Because what's at stake here is not just do I get an answer right or wrong. What's at stake is where is the authority in my life that I'm going to lean into? When I come to that T-junction, what am I going to do? When I'm really drawn this way and all my friends think this way, what am I going to do if the Word of God says this? And it comes back to this question that we put in our, our value statement. How much authority am I willing to give God and His Word in my life? Am I willing to believe and trust in that when everything else kind of pulls me over here? And I get it if you're not, but then let's just own it for what it is. And let's say, I'm not willing to trust the Scriptures yet. I'm not willing to trust this Jesus yet. Let's talk about that. But let's own it for what it is. To me, if someone comes and dies and comes back to life, predicted it and pulled it off, and he says, I'm the way and the truth and the life, and the reason that he went to the cross was not arrogance, but service and love. Being willing to walk into a city where he was going to be tortured and die for me. 
if he comes to it with that attitude, with that love, with that courage, until someone else comes along and says otherwise, I'm going to line up with him. That I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And the result of that for us should be love, care, humble service for one another. And the T-junction. The mood is pulling us. I get it. And the question becomes, how much authority am I willing to give God and his word in my life? How much authority am I willing to give to a God-man who said, I'm the way, I'm the truth, and the life. Christianity depends on it, and our hope depends on that. Christianity asks a ton. It asks a ton. And this is one of those things that asks a ton of you. Believe this, that Jesus is worth it. He's worth all of it. And that he alone asks you for everything that you have. It's a big ask. It's a big question. Is he really the only way? Is he really the only way? How much authority am I willing to give God and his word in my life? Will you pray with me? Our good God and heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and for the challenge that this is. I pray that you would help us to step into this both with honesty and courage and deal directly with these issues in our life of whether we really believe in this or not and the implications of this for how we love and care for those around us. For those who are struggling with this this morning, I am grateful for them and the pushback that they have and the, the angst of what it means to believe in this. And there is angst. There is doubt for some this morning as to whether, God, you are fair and whether this is equitable and whether we just happen to get lucky to be born here compared to somewhere else. And I get all of that and that's all part of this processing but I pray that you would not let us rest from those questions until we deal with them, until we answer them. We've been thinking about these things. They've come up, they've gone away. And I pray that you would continue to move in us to resolve these questions. That we can be people who know the truth, not just know the mood of our culture. We thank you that you are a good, faithful, loving God who no matter what, moves in us, cares for us, no matter what we do. We love you. We thank you for our time this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. I invite you to stand with us for the closing song.
Guys, thank you so much for being here this morning, and I pray that you'll push on and fight against and wrestle with the questions that we're asking now, that your faith can be pushed into something that sometimes makes us uncomfortable, or your questions or doubts can be pressed up hard against it. Don't remove that tension too quickly. Know that Christianity can handle any question that you ask. I love you guys. Thanks so much for coming. I hope you have a great and courageous week. You're dismissed.